Ecclesiastes can be a baffling book. It, it, it is, it's, I've, I've said this earlier in our study, to me, I have found it to be the most difficult book to uh, get a grip on, I, I think, in the entire Bible. And something hit me this week about Ecclesiastes. I love what's in here. <clears throat> but it is, um, it, it's baffling at times. And, and, and for some reason, I thought about the road to Hana. If you have ever been to Maui, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you've not, let me explain the road to Hana. You'll see uh, anywhere in Maui, Anywhere in Maui, you'll see people wearing T-shirts. The T-shirts say, I survived the road to Hana. Uh, Maui's a beautiful island. You can go down to the south by Wailea, or you can go up on the west, up north. Uh, they were playing golf there a couple of weeks ago on TV. You know, it's beautiful, beautiful, just gorgeous. Um, but if you go north, straight up the middle, you can take a right to the airport, or you can go north to the coastline, up around Paia, and then you start heading east. And you say, yeah, I'd like to go on the east side of the island. I'd like to go to Hana. <laughs> well, you, you ought to talk to someone before you get on the road to Hana. The road to Hana, and I'm doing this from memory. The road to Hana, I'm going to, is it roughly 40, 45 miles? Something like that? No more. I don't think any more than that. Maybe 50. Um... I asked some guys today at lunch, you've been on the road to Hana? Yeah. How long do you figure it took you? Guy, oh, six hours? <laughs> One guy said five, another guy said six. One guy said four and a half, and the other guy said, no way. Absolutely no way. You covered 40 miles in four and a half hours. Because it's the road to Hana. It's, it's, it, it's probably the original road they cut back in the 20s, teens. 1915, 19-something like that, so guys could get their crops down to the little town, the little village. Uh, the road to Hana is uh, perilous. It runs through rainforest. It is barely a car width wide. Uh, it goes through a rainforest, through mountains, and it, to me, the, the hallmark of the road to Hana are the switchbacks. You, I don't recall ever going over 15 miles an hour on the road to Hana. That's a wide open stretch. You're in first gear going 15. And the wind is blowing in your hair. Uh, a lot of places you're going seven, eight, nine miles an hour. And, and that's pushing it. Your wife's a little nervous. Because it is so narrow, you go maybe... 50, 60 feet, and then you switch back. And then you go and you switch back. And it's not unusual, honestly, to see people with their door open vomiting. Because it's just unnerving. Uh, there are many warnings about the road to Hana. If you have a rental car, there are certain stretches on the road to Hana that if you go on that road, you have just 
violated your rental agreement, and if you have any kind of breakdown or repair, you are liable for the entire cost of the car. And it's in your agreement in minuscule print somewhere. That's the road to Hana. To me, Ecclesiastes is sort of like the road to Hana. Because it's, it's kind of hard to follow the road. And he'll be on a topic, and then all of a sudden he switches. And then you're just getting into that, and then he switches back. And then he, he's on something you haven't seen before, and then he switches back to something he did two chapters ago. And, then, and every once in a while you'll get a rest stop. A little place of rest where you can kind of breathe. And, and after all, and all these, and all these switchbacks, he's talking about different issues of life. And he said, yeah, you can pursue that and pursue that and pursue that, but it's empty and it's meaningless and it's void and it's a breath and it's a vapor and it's not significant. And if you do that, you'll waste your life. Oh, okay, thanks. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he'll say, so fear God, do your work, get enjoyment out of what God has given you. All enjoyment is a gift of God who's over the sun, not under the sun, and then he's back into futility and all. Uh, uh, oh, man. I survived the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> it's not a bad t-shirt. But there's great wisdom. My gosh, there's just such wisdom in Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes 5, I see five warnings. I want to give them to you up front, and then we'll go back and work our way through them. Warning one is in Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 through 3, where he simply says, watch your words before God. Watch your words before God. Second warning, verses 4 through 7. Watch your vows before God. Watch your vows before God. Warning three, verses eight to nine. Here's a switchback. Watch government bureaucracies for injustice. You think I'm kidding, you'll see it in a minute. Watch government bureaucracies for injustice, verses eight to nine. Warning four, this would be verses 10 through 17. Watch out for the love of money. Watch out for the love of money. Warning five, verses 18 through 20. Watch your joy and be content. If you didn't get all those, we'll get them. We'll go through them again in a minute as we go through the text. But we gotta, we gotta jump in. I've asked God to help me pace myself. I really have tonight. Because chapter 5 is, is a road to Hana. We got some switchbacks here. Um, let's read verses 1 through 3 and the warning to watch your words before God. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. The house of God for them would be the temple in Jerusalem that Solomon had built, Solomon the author here. That's the house of God. Um, Tonight, here at Stonebriar Church, you are not in the house of God. God does not dwell in buildings. This is a building. In the New Testament, God dwells in the hearts of his people. You see? 
um, it's very important that we distinguish that. They would go to the temple because there was the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. But in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, uh, God lives within his people through Jesus Christ and through the Spirit of God. Okay. What, guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near, watch this, to listen. Rather than the, uh, offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Let me just make a comment on the sacrifice of fools. Um, I, I think this is a word against religious ritual and religious formalism. A lot of you guys were raised in churches that you couldn't understand. There were rituals and meanings you didn't get. You would light candles, or you would pray to the saints, or you would do this or that. And, and in fact, it, it wasn't, yeah, that church service was conducted not even in your own language. And you couldn't understand it. And there were no Bibles. They didn't pass out Bibles. There were no Bibles in the rack, you see, because the authority is in the church. But see, the authority is in God's Word. Um, in the Old Testament, you, you'll see from time to time, God would make this statement that I desire obedience rather than sacrifice. Now, did they do sacrifices in the temple? Yes. Was it possible, though, to go through the um, ritual of a sacrifice externally without your heart being in it? Yes. See, that's formalism in church. Uh, it, it's possible today to meet with God's people, and when you, you sing, and uh, you sing, but your heart's not in it. You attend church because your parents dragged you or because your wife wants you to go, and you don't want to be there. You're there externally. You're not there internally, you see. Uh, this has happened to all of us. Um, I, I, when he says, you don't want to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they don't know, do not know that they are doing evil, you see, it's external. This is like in all the mafia movies. In the Godfather movies, where they go to church and they're having the baby uh, baptized, and at the same time, he's having, uh, 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 you know, Giuseppe, uh, you know, drawn and quartered by his hitman. See, that's absolute, that's, that's, that's utter foolishness. You're going to church and you're playing the game and you're going through the ritual and it's all formal, but there's no heart because if there is heart, you would obey, thou shalt not murder. It's a disconnect. It's head knowledge, maybe, but there's no heart. God always looks at the heart. You shall love the Lord your God with all your ritual. Deuteronomy 6. No, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your might. Uh, God looks on the outward appearance. Uh, sorry. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. God's always looking at our hearts. So the sacrifice of fools is going through some kind of religious um, activity without there being any heart. You see. It's possible for there to be an altar call and someone to go just out of sheer emotion 
I remember the Billy Graham Association. Uh, I, remember, I, I remember reading this. I've read it more than once, that by their own uh, follow-up, of all the people that have ever gone forward, they figure that somewhere around 10% have actually been, become disciples of Christ and followed him. Because sometimes, and, and Mr. Graham preaches the gospel, but sometimes people get swept. Others are going, or, gee, my, I know my wife wants me to go, or my grandmother wants me to go, and all. See, that's just external. Well, they went down and made a profession of faith. It was a profession, all right, but there was no heart. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, and that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Okay. But note five, I wanted to explain the sacrifice of fool. That's foolish. That's a waste of time. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen. To listen. It doesn't say to speak, but to listen. Uh, you know, these chapter divisions that we have, that's chapter five, verse one. It wasn't in the original. They put it in to help us just kind of find our place and get to verses. It's a reference point. If you recall... Last week, we were talking about the enigmas of God. Um, in chapter 3, it says God has appointed everything and every event under heaven. There's a time to die. There's a time, there's time to be born. There's a time to die. There's a time for everything. There's a time for the thrill of victory and the time for the agony of defeat. And you're going to get everything in life. You're going to get good and bad. And Ecclesiastes 3 says, whatever comes into your life, it all comes from the hand of God, good and bad. That's just not in Ecclesiastes 3. Then you get to the midpoint of Ecclesiastes 3, and he talks about, we talked this, about this last week, the things that throw us, the things that be seem to be, con if God's appointed everything and has a plan for my life and he has a plan for the world, why is there evil? Why does bad stuff happen to me? Why are there calamities? Why are there natural disasters? Why is there injustice everywhere? And what that presents to us, th those are enigmas, those are mysteries. We can't reconcile this evil with the goodness of God. And it can really mess you up. And you think that you throw the baby out with a bottle. Oh, this can't be true because I, I trusted Christ and this bad stuff happened to me. Uh, we mentioned Joseph. I'll mention again. Um, he was sold into slavery at 17. Winds up becoming co-prime minister with Pharaoh in Egypt. Actually is a father to Pharaoh, the scriptures say. Most powerful man on the face of the earth. You know, his brothers come, they need food. He's finally reunited. He says, I'm Joseph. Uh, they all come to live in Egypt. Uh, many years later, his father dies, and his brothers in Genesis 50 freak out because they think now, okay, dad's dead. He's going to get us for what we did when he was 17. And they said, hey, Joseph, by the way, dad wrote this letter, and he wants you to be real nice to us. He, he wanted us to tell you that. <laughs> it's in Genesis 50. You can read it. And Joseph wept when he heard that. And he said, basically, guys, you got nothing. You're fine. You have nothing to worry about. What happened all those years ago? You intended it for evil. But God intended it for good to bring about this present result. The amazing thing about our God, evil happens. God's never the author of evil because of his character. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God's character, holiness, is absolute moral purity. God cannot sin. God cannot do evil. God cannot lie. It doesn't say he doesn't lie. It says he cannot lie because of his moral nature. He can't do it. Yet he uses evil 
and he uses the work of the enemy to accomplish his purpose and for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. And there's the enigma. How can that be? Well, that's what we looked at last week. Here's what happens. Five, the enigmas are the previous verses rolling in to chapter 5, verse 1. So to me, the context is when you go into the temple, watch yourself and make sure that you listen rather than you're about to put God in the witness stand and cross-examine him for what he's allowed you to go through. Chapter 5, guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Let your words be few. Be careful what you say to God about the disappointing things that have happened in your life. You can talk to him because he's your father. You can pour out your heart to him. Um, I, I like what Tommy Nelson said here. He said, my mother always used to say to me, watch your tone. Watch that tone of voice, young man. It wasn't so much what he said, it was how he was saying it. This corresponds to me with James chapter 1, verse 19. Uh, the same, same wisdom, same principle. You're familiar with this, James 1, 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now, let me just speak for myself here. Here's my normal scenario, okay? I'm quick to speak. I'm slow to hear. And I'm slow to anger. You ever, heard of the, you ever hear of a hair trigger? Yeah. I, I think what he's saying, when, when you're going into the house of the Lord, where, where, where the Word of God is instructed, and do bad things and hard things happen to us? Yeah. Be careful. Watch your tone. Because you see, God is in heaven and you are on the earth, and your Father has things in mind for you that you know nothing about. Isn't it not interesting that as young boys... Our fathers, I, I remember my dad would, would do something or tell me something or require something of me, and I, I remember going in the bathroom and shutting the door and cussing my dad. Very quietly. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a whisper. But boy, I'd let him have it. <laughs> and then... I don't know, 20, 25 years later, I found myself, I had kids. And I was saying to my kids the exact same thing that my dad said to me. And it made total and complete sense to me 25 years later, although when I was younger, it made no sense to me. 
Because you see, now I'm an adult, now I'm a father, now I know things that I didn't know when I was six years old, but now I'm 28 or 32 or 35, and now I know things I had no clue about when I was young. You see? So watch your words, watch your tone. Um, and watch the clock. <laughs> then he says in verse 3, For the, dreams, the dream comes through much effort, and the voice of a fool through many words. Okay, there are verses here that are confusing. And I, I don't know, I, I usually read at least 10 commentaries every week on these passages because some of them are a little dicey, it's a little unclear. All right, what's, what, okay. So, and, and you know, so I'm just going to, I read stuff to you because I find something, I hit, this sucker nailed it. I'm going to read it to you. Derek Kidner, great, great Old Testament scholar. On verse 3, for the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. So here's what Kidner says. He says, two proverbs drive home the point by linking the chatter of fools to the unreality of dreams. The link is a little elusive in verse 3, but less so in verse 7, where the dreams appear to be daydreams, reducing worship to verbal doodling. I love that. You ever doodle? You're in your office? You're kind of out of gas. You need some coffee. You can't think. You just start doodling on a legal pad. Yeah. By the way, look at verse 7, because they are connected. For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. There you go. All right. So what's he saying? He's saying this. Verse 3 seems to mean that by its very quantity and excess of talk, an excess of talk is bound to throw up folly or foolishness. If you talk too much, you're going to get foolish. Just as the excess of business ends in troubled dreams. If business is all you do, you're going to get out of balance because life is more than business and life is more than work. Okay, I'm going to leave it right there. Let's go to the next warning. Uh, I can't go to the next warning because I forgot the quote. Man, I found an article. I found some, I found some stuff this week. Gavin Ortland wrote a blog post. This guy is brilliant. His father was Raymond Ortland, senior, longtime pastor of Lake Avenue Congregation. His dad is Raymond Ortland, Jr., who's a Presbyterian pastor in Nashville. His friends call him Bud Ortland. Great family. This, this, this kid's got great genetics, spiritually, and he's not a kid. He's working on his Ph.D. Um, this is at the Gospel Coalition. It's called Three Ways Our Culture is Different Than Every Other Culture in History. It ex kind of explains the mess we're in right now. Uh, but he has this one quote. I'll give you the three points he makes, but I can't go into them. The, the first one is that we put God in the dock. Secondly, morality is all about self-expression. Morality before has always been fixed. The Ten Commandments. No more. Morality is simply about me expressing myself, and the greatest immorality is for you to try to check my self-expression. Uh, and three, life is starved of, of transcendence. In other words, there is no God. Therefore, I can do anything I want, and there's no accountability. That's where we are as a culture. I want to go back to God in the dock. He says, I'm currently writing my doctoral dissertation on Anselm, 
the church teacher from 1033 to 1109 A.D. I'm always amazed by how exercised he was by the problem of divine mercy. Throughout his writings, he labored over the question, how can a just and righteous God pass over sins and spare the undeserving? How can that be? Today, we have the opposite problem. Divine mercy is assumed, but divine justice must be explained to us because we don't deserve justice. We deserve mercy on everything. <laughs> C.S. Lewis captured the distinction well. The ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. Man is the judge. God is in the dock. See, this is why we let our words be few, because we put God in the witness stand and we start cross-examining God. Why would you do this? By the way, you kind of get a glimpse of this in Job, and you get to Job 38 and 39, and some of the things that were thrown up to God, why would you allow this? And why do you, I, I look to the left, you're not there. I look to the right, I can't find you. I mean, Job's struggling. Why have you allowed this to happen to me? And beginning right around 38, 39, God answers Job, and God never gives him an answer. But God says, where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I made the oceans and said, you can go this far and no further? Where were you? Where were you? Where were you? Have you ever seen an ostrich give birth? Have you ever seen? Have you ever? And it shut his mouth. Don't cross-examine God. Tell him your hurts. No problem with that. Tell him your hurts. Tell him like Psalm 77. I, 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 when I think of you, Lord, I'm disturbed. You can be honest like that. You've held my eyelids open. I can't even sleep at night, Lord. I'm so disturbed. This might be Psalm 73 or Psalm 77. I can't stop and look it up because i got to move. But it's in there. There's a right way to do this and there's a wrong way. Second warning. Watch your vows before God, verses 4 through 7. Watch your vows. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So here's what happens. These guys go into the temple in Jerusalem, and, you know, their business is in trouble and all this. And they're often these sacrifices, and there's no heart in it. And they say, oh, Lord, I'll tell you what, if you turn my business around, I promise that I'll do this, and I'll give you this, and I'll give you this. Oh, Lord, if you just save me from this situation, I promise you that I'll turn to you, and I'll go in the ministry full-time. I've talked to guys that come to this study who, as young men, uh, made vows to God that they would go into full-time ministry. Uh, I know guys that are in full-time ministry that are there not because they're called, but because their mother pushed them. Good men. Good men. Uh, who are um, really frustrated, if the, love Christ, but I, I'm thinking of one guy in particular, loves the Lord. But I think at his stage in life feels like he's somewhat of a failure because he's not a pastor of a megachurch, which is what his mother pushed on him his whole entire life. Well-meaning woman, loved the Lord, 
strong woman. I mean, that kid didn't have a chance. Uh, as, I, as I look at him, I think he's got a, he loves Christ. I think he has a gift of mercy. That's why he's always going to hospitals and talking with people in hospital rooms. He's got a gift of mercy. That's his gift. That's how he's bent. He's not wired to run a big mega church ministry. That's not his gift. There's nothing wrong with that. That's admirable. That's godly. I think he feels like he missed it. I've had guys say, God called me into ministry as a young man, and I got away from him and all this, and now I'm such and such, and I've come back to the Lord. And now they're thinking, you know, I'm 94, and I'm going to go to Dallas Seminary and get a four-year degree. Yeah, maybe you don't want to do that. <laughs> well, I made a vow, and I want to fulfill it. Well, then just, hey, listen, if you've made a vow to the Lord and you haven't fulfilled it, by the way, can I say this to you? If you said you'd do something, then do it. Well, see, what I did was really stupid, and there's no way at this point in my life, there is no absolute way I can pay. I made, I told the Lord I would do this financially. There's not a way in the world I can do this. Okay. Then you, I feel guilty I haven't fulfilled it. All right. Then why don't you go to your Savior, who died for every sin, and why don't you go to him and say, Lord Jesus, if there was any way I could do this, I would do it. I don't have the means. I ask your forgiveness. If there's something I can do, would you show me what it is to do the right thing here? Listen, we've all said things we shouldn't have said. We've all made vows. But there's a principle here as we move ahead. It's better not to make a vow than to make a deal with God. There are some guys that are very proud because they've got the ability to make deals. I'm going to let that sit for a minute. <laughs> you don't make deals with God. You don't make deals with Him. You ask Him for forgiveness. And when a guy is really, really good at making deals and says he has no need to ask for forgiveness, Martin Lloyd Jones. In one of his books told the story of the farmer who had a cow that gave birth to twin calves. Uh, one of the calves was red and one was white. He said to his wife, you know, I've been led of the Lord to dedicate one of the calves to the Lord. We will raise them together and at the right time comes, we'll sell it and we'll keep the money for the one calf and we'll give the money from the other to the Lord. His wife said, well, which one are you going to dedicate to the Lord? And he answered, well, there's no need to decide that now, since he was going to treat both of them just the same. Months went by, and he came into the kitchen one morning dejected. His wife said, what's wrong? He said, well, I have bad news. The, uh, the Lord's cow has died. <laughs> the calf died? One of the cat, yes. The Lord's calf died. But you had not decided which calf was the Lord's calf. Oh, 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 yes. Oh, oh, yes, I had decided the white one was the Lord's calf. And it was the white one who has died. You get it. 
You get it. That's the sacrifice of fools. Warning three, watch government bureaucracies for injustice. This is what you call a switchback. Now, earlier in Ecclesiastes, he talked about injustice and oppression, and that's everywhere. It happens. Now he's getting real specific. Verse 8, if you see the oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness, watch this, in the province. Hmm. In Canada, don't they call their states provinces? Yes, they do. What's a province? It's, a, it's, a, it's an entity of the state. Uh, this is exactly what he's talking about. If you see the oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, watch this. Do not be shocked at the sight if you see injustice and righteousness, a denial of justice, a denial of righteousness in the province. Don't be shocked, for one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. Yes, there are. So yesterday, I'm kind of perusing the Wall Street Journal, and I come across this article, headline in the opinion section, written by Jim Sensenbrenner, Welcome to the Legal Minefield, laid by President Obama and the Feds. Now, I'm, I'm, not, I'm just reading the article, all right? Listen to this. There's a point. Through the first five years of his presidency, Barack Obama added 11,327 pages to the Code of Federal Regulations. No one knows how many criminal laws are contained in the compendium of legal rules and regulations promulgated by executive departments and administrative agencies. I asked the Congressional Research Service, this guy's a congressman, did I say that? I asked the Congressional Research Service to investigate. They said they didn't have the resources to answer. They couldn't tell him which regulations had what crime, which regulations had. It, it, was too, it was too overwhelming. One thing is certain, though, no matter how many laws there are, Americans are subject to them all. As John Baker, retired law professor at LSU, told the Journal in 2011, there was no one in the United States over the age of 18 who cannot be indicted for some federal crime. The result is a minefield for individual and businesses at risk of violating obscure laws of rules or rules. Increasingly staying out of prison and avoiding fines and legal fees depends on the arbitrary whims of a bureaucrat. He cites several cases, one being Abner Schoenwetter, who spent six years in federal prison. Think about that. Six years in federal prison, found guilty in 2000 of packaging lobsters with plastic rather than cardboard. A violation, watch this, of an obscure Honduran regulation. Not American, Honduran, Honduras. Under the Lacey Act in the United States, it is illegal for an American citizen to violate any fish or wildlife regulation of any nation. And I hear guys, I hear guys go, You know how I interpret that? You're shocked. And 3,000 years ago, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Solomon said, if you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked. And we're shocked. Now, don't forget 
that this is not the only world that there is, and do not forget that all judgment has been given to the Son, and do not forget that judges who make a decision, do not forget that supreme courts who make decisions and are accountable to no one, do not forget that those supreme courts are not supreme courts. So don't be shocked when they go the wrong way. Every member of any state court, any member of the United States court, Supreme Court, they will all make an appearance at the Supreme Court and stand before Christ. Read Revelation 20, and it's in the end of Ecclesiastes. It seems like there is oppression and injustice and so often they just get away, and they just keep getting away, and they just keep you. There will be a day. There will be a, be a day of accountability. All judgment has been given to the Son. Um, okay, I'm going I'm to read this. So that verse, um, he, he says, if you see oppression, denial of justice, righteousness in the province, don't be shocked at the sight. Um, for one official watches over another, and there are higher officials over them. He says, if you, if you see this, um, there are two ways you can interpret this. I'm going to let Philip Riken explain it. Riken says, what is hard to understand is exactly what Kohaleth, or Solomon, thinks we should, why he thinks we should not be surprised at all of this injustice. He says, don't be shocked, don't be surprised. Well, why, why does he say not be surprised? He refers to an official hierarchy in which one person oversees another, but it's not entirely clear why this causes injustice. Maybe the issue here is government bureaucracy, what some call the red tape interpretation. Somehow a multi-level multi bureaucracy always seems to open more doors to injustice. Uh, in the words of one scholar, this verse is about the frustrations of oppressive bureaucracy with its endless delays and excuses. While the poor cannot afford to wait, injustice is lost between the tiers of the hierarchy. That's one read. Here's another one. Or perhaps the point is that each level of government takes something from the level below. We should not be surprised when people in authority abuse their power. Eventually, injustice reaches all the way down to the poor, who would probably oppress someone if they could, but they can't because they're at the bottom. On this interpretation, the problem is not bureaucracy, but tyranny. Now, we're headed for both. And you know it, and I know it, unless God intervenes. The right way to interpret the verse partly depends on the meaning of the word for watched. According, occasionally this word has a negative connotation, so it might refer to the way diff that different branches of government tend to be suspicious of one another. To watch in this sense is to keep people under surveillance, looking for a way to take advantage of them. But watch can also be taken more positively, in which case it would imply that people in government are watching out for one another, protecting each other. This kind of cronyism creates a political machine. He goes on and says, 
Really, it's besides the point. There are so many kinds of injustice in society that we should never be surprised by sin. It's the condition of the human heart. Unless there is, and he quotes Martin Luther, unless there is some Solomon to exhort and console him, Martin Luther said, government crushes the man, extinguishes him, and utterly destroys him. That's how most governments operate. Now, we've had an exception for 200 years, but we're seeing it turn. Are we not? You wrap lobster in the wrong, uh, the wrong stuff, and you're going to the pen for six years. You know it, and I know it. Uh, verse 9, after all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. Uh, w w what is that about? Um, well, perhaps what that is about is the best defense against corruption and bureaucracy is a godly king, you see. Solomon had a bureaucracy. He had 12, you'll see, he had 12 vice regents that they split 12 tribes, and they were all responsible for governing this land, this portion, getting food in, doing all this. And you know what? People's hearts are corrupt. But a godly king goes a long way. I want to show you something in Psalm 15. Whenever I go to Psalm 15, I get in trouble. And I get some people mad at me. But, you know, I'm 66. Why should I stop now? <laughs> I won't live much longer. What the heck? Just kidding. Just horsing around. Uh, Psalm 15. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? It's the description of a citizen of Zion. It's the description of those who know the Lord. Um, in Psalm 1, you've got the wicked man and you've got the righteous man. One man's in rebellion to God. The other man is in submission to God. Okay? And you have this contrast all the way through Psalms. Lord, who may abide? By the way, who abides in your tent? I don't have a tent. Well, what do you got? A condo? A double wide? What do you got? A house? What do you got? Whatever you got, you live somewhere. Who, who abides with you? Family. He's asking the question, Oh, Lord, who abides in your tent? The answer would be Family my covenant people that I've adopted, Romans 8, you see? We're sons through Jesus Christ. We've been adopted in, into, we've been adopted into faith, judicially. We can never lose those privileges. Uh, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Who lives on your property? Family, close friends, perhaps, okay? Uh, the answer is, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness. No, notice the emphasis on character. Not on speeches, not on spin, not on promises. Notice the emphasis on proven character. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness. He does not slander with his tongue, uh, even in debates. I th that's in the Hebrew. <laughs> Actually, it isn't. I just made it up. I just wanted to say it. Uh, he does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor. He doesn't take a reproach up against his friend. Watch this. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised? A reprobate is a vile person. A reprobate is someone who is really against God and God's revelation and God's Son and the truth of God that's in the Scriptures. 
It, it doesn't mean that he doesn't understand those people need the Lord, but the values and the lifestyle of those people he doesn't emulate or follow. Psalm 1-1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, nor stand in the path of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates both day and night, and he shall be like a tree firmly planted by streams of living water. You see, the righteous don't follow the wicked. Okay. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Oh, and this man, this man who follows the Lord, he swears to his own hurt and doesn't change. When he gives his word, and when it becomes inconvenient to follow through with his word, he'll follow through with it even if it hurts him. He doesn't turn on a dime because it comes, becomes inconvenient to follow through in his word. Uh, he does not put out his money in interest because the Jews could not charge interest of a brother who had a need. They could to Gentiles, but not to a brother. Uh, he does not take a bribe against the innocent. He does not take money from special in interest groups that harvest the organs of children and crush their skulls and kill them. Nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. I've had guys ask me, so with all this stuff, Steve, how are you going to vote? I just say, Psalm 15. Uh, I just read and study and look at this. and who, who, Who kind of seems the closest to Psalm 15? I think you're on good ground there. You guys still with me? I just want everybody to like me. But you search the scriptures. You, you search the scriptures. Ask the Lord. And you know what? You know, and honestly, guys, everyone's kind of frantic and freaked out, and this whole thing is, this whole nation is just coming apart at the seams. But don't forget God's governing it all. Riken had something in here I didn't plan on saying. Listen to this. In regard to the bureaucratic oppression, Riken goes on and says, rather than looking for the government to solve our problems, we need to acknowledge that even the best rulers fall well short of perfection. Therefore, we live in the hope of a better administration. And you're saying, yeah, that's right. But listen, one that we do not find in Ecclesiastes, but we do find in the gospel. For unto us a child is born. For unto us a son is given. And the government <laughs> shall be on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government 
and of peace there will be no end. I'm going to tell you something. I find myself sounding like my grandpa. My grandpa would pray. He was always praying and, and praying that Jesus, you'll come back soon. I never prayed that when I was 15 because I wanted my driver's license at 16. I don't want Jesus coming back tonight. I want to get that driver's license. I want freedom, man. I had to get in the car last night and just go drive around and pray out loud. And I prayed, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. There's our hope. And he's coming. And he'll sustain us until he comes. Warning four. Watch the love of money. Watch out for the love of money. Okay? This is verses 10 through 17. This, uh, okay, watch out for the love of money. You say, I've got to have money. I, I love Joe, what Joe Lewis, the heavyweight champ, said. He said, I don't love money, but um, it has a way of calming my nerves. <laughs> Man, I, I, I just, I, I've always loved that quote, because money has a way of calming your nerves. I, I watch my sons. I watch my son-in-law. They're all in their 30s, and I'm proud of them because they work their tails off. And they're trying to get ahead, and they're trying to provide for the little families. And, you know, they're trying to put a little away, and they're trying to pay these taxes, and they're trying. I just, I watch them, and I remember those years. And they go, man, I, I, you know, they, you know, they, they got to put new windows in because the house they bought, they didn't buy the new house, they bought the old one because they liked the neighborhood. And now they're paying the price. And, oh, man, they're thinking, man, we should have bought that new house. But see, when you, it's just life. You never get it right all the time. They're under money stress, and they're trying to manage it, and I'm proud of them, but it's a struggle. It is a struggle. And what we tend to think, man, I just wish, oh, man, that's when you go buy a lottery ticket. <laughs> you see? And you see guys peeling off the money to buy a lottery ticket. Now, there's a warning in Scripture about wanting to get rich. Go to 1 Timothy 6, because what is said in 1 Timothy 6 is going to be explained right here by Solomon and Ecclesiastes. Listen, we, we want to provide for our families. We, we want to, uh, we, we just do. That's a godly thing. Uh, we want to provide a, a good level of income, and we want to provide things for our kids and education. Nothing wrong with that. That's a great thing. The, sitting on your tail when you can work, but you don't work, that's a thing to be ashamed of. But to want to provide and put some money away, you, you know, a wise man uh, sets aside money for his children's children, that's a good thing. But there's a point where, see, if you're not careful, all you'll do is pursue money. There are dangers about wanting to get rich. There's a point where you ought to be able to say, you know, Lord, Thank you, and I'm, I'm, I'm gracious. I, I'm, I'm thankful for what you've done. And you may not have all, and compared to friends, they may have more, but you're okay. And you, you sense, I'm where God wants me to be. And I'm not saying you don't strive and you don't work hard. There's a balance here. But listen to what Solomon, listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, beginning with verse 6. Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we brought nothing in the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. For if we have food and cover, covering with these, we shall be content. 
No, I, I, I'm not sure I'd be that way. If, just, if I just had food and covering, I'm not sure I'd be content. I think I'd be uh, angry. Wouldn't you? Because everybody else has more than I have. But see, Paul went on and he said, I have learned this stuff. Okay, that's Philippians 4. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Watch this. Watch this. Here's some warnings on the road to Hana. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation. You say, oh, no, 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 that's, that's, uh, that's adultery. That's what he means. Checking out women, that, that can lead to temptation. Yeah, it can. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation. And a snare. And many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. See, when we're young and we're trying to just survive and make it, you're good for you. You're working hard and you're trying to make it. But at a certain point, and you accumulate a little, and you, okay, and you get the balance here? Money's dangerous. George Mueller used to say, God is my banker. He knows my heart, and he, he watches the inflow, and he watches the outflow. You cannot love God and mammon. You cannot love God and money. You've got to make up your mind. You've got to have money. But Paul said, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. Okay, now let's go back. He's going to talk more about the warnings. In verses 11 through um, 16, actually. Here's what I want to do. Randy Alcorn wrote an excellent little book called The Treasure Principle. It's the best book on money. It, it, it's, it's, so, it's brief. It's so biblical. It's dripping with common sense. Um, I recommend it to you. The Treasury Principle by, by Randy Alcorn. In there, he takes each verse and he gives a principle or two. And I, I want to give you Randy's principles. Um, you say, you're quoting a lot of people tonight. Yes, I am. Uh, you know the old adage in academic circles, if you borrow from one, it's plagiarism. If you borrow from many, it's research. <laughs> I've been doing research. Let's see what the warnings are about many, money. Uh, Ecclesiastes, and you know what? I was in three. My Bible turned the page. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Actually, it is verses 10 uh, through 17. Verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. That's interesting. Nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity or emptiness. Randy's principle in verse 10 is the more you have, the more you want. He has a second principle. The more you have, the less you're satisfied. Verse 11, when good things increase, those who consume them increase. I've never seen a boxer go into a heavyweight title fight without an entourage of about 45 guys with gold chains and Rolex watches. And most of these guys come from really hard, deprived, poverty-stricken backgrounds. That's why they're fighters. It's the only way they can get out. Interesting, though, how they 
accumulate blood-sucking parasites in their entourage. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what's the advantage to their owners except to look on? Randy's principle in verse 11 is the more you have, the more people, including the government, will come after it. Also in verse 11, a second principle. The more you have, the more you realize it does you no good. You just look on as others consume it. Verse 12. The sleep of the working man is pleasant. I was watching guys yesterday uh, using sledgehammers, putting down uh, forms and uh, getting ready for concrete footings. I, watched, I went out early in the morning, they were there. I went out about 1, they were there. I went out about 4.30, they were there. And I thought to myself, because I just read this, I bet those guys are going to sleep well tonight. Didn't make a lot of money. They were going to sleep. The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. Verse 12, Randy's principle is, the more you have, the more you have to worry about. Verse uh, 13, there is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. Uh, Randy has a principle here. The more you have, the more you can hurt yourself by holding on to it. By hoarding. At a certain point, you have to start giving and giving more and giving more. It just makes sense. The greatest financial principle in the world is given and shall be given unto you. <clears throat> At one point, George Mueller who had the orphanages in England. And you can see the buildings today in Bristol. Brian, you've been there, I think. You can see those buildings. He, he would feed 2,000 kids, clothe them, educate them. Uh, the thing about Mueller, though, he never made financial appeals. He would never send out prayer letters. He, he said it's fine for others to do it. He just didn't feel like God wanted him to do it. Uh, he just wanted to trust in God alone and take it to the Lord in prayer. And you look at his autobiography, which I've got on my shelf, it's subtitled 50,000 Answers to Prayer, and he estimated that 30,000 answers to prayer came within 12 hours of him asking God. He said, I want people to know that God's the living God. And he kept meticulous records, and he has incredible stories. Uh, I'm thinking of one situation where a man who had been generous in giving to the orphans uh, wrote Mueller a letter and said, my wife and I have suffered, a, have suffered a staggering financial loss that we never saw coming, and we're just a little baffled by it, and not, not wonder if you had some wisdom for us. And uh, Mueller wrote back to them, and, and he said, I thank you for your letter, and yes, this is somewhat shocking that, that you've had this loss. He said, I think if I were hit with a staggering financial loss, he said, I think that I would give a thank offering to the Lord. Uh, say what? That's what you call, that's an Ecclesiastes uh, switchback. If I had a staggering financial loss, I think I'd give a thank offering to the Lord, and then he gave his reasoning. I think I would give a thank offering to the Lord because he didn't take it all, even though he could have. He didn't take it all. 
And he goes on and says that the man and his wife decided to give a gift of 100 pounds, which at that time was very sacrificial for them. They took the counsel. And he goes on and says, I'm happy to tell you that God watches over his word to perform it. They did not receive a response from the Lord of their gift of four times or of five times or even ten times or even a hundred times of what they gave. They received a return from the Lord of a thousand times. A thousand times. Give and it shall be given unto you. But this man's hoarding. There's a warning about hoarding. Next verse. Verse 14. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. Verse 14. The more you have, the more you have to lose. Verse 15. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. The principle here is, the more you have, the more you'll leave behind. By the way, how much are you going to leave behind? All of it. All of it. All of it. God oversees our income. He knows your monthly needs. He knows your retirement needs. He, he knows it all. One of my favorite verses is Isaiah 46.2. Listen to me, O house of Jacob and you remnant of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth and carried from the womb even to your old age. I will be the same. Even to your grain years, I will bear you. I have borne you. I have carried you. I will bear you. I will carry you. It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. He has to fulfill his promise. Uh, last warning. Watch your joy and be content, verses 18 to 20. And here's one of those switchbacks. He goes back, he, all through the book, he'll suddenly just drop these in. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life, which... God has given him. God's given you your life. He's given you life in Christ. He's given you your, your, uh, uh, your ability to work. Deuteronomy 18 is he who gives you the power to make wealth. He oversees your inflow. He oversees your outflow. He oversees uh, your interest coming in, your investments. He oversees the downturns. Uh, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job 2, shall we accept prosperity from God and not adversity? No, because God sends both, because we learn lessons in both. Consider the work of God, Ecclesiastes 7. Consider the work of God, who can straighten what he has been. In the day of prosperity, be glad. In the day of adversity, consider, for God has made the one as well as the other. I'm completely dependent on you, Lord, 
Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life or remember the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. God blesses men who fear him, who trust him, who depend on him, and take his promises seriously. And when it comes to money, you know, to me, here are the warnings about money. You know what the acid test to me about money is? Because I've, I've gotten into love of money. I know I have. I know I have. Uh, you've gotten into love of money. It, 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 it's so subtle. You know what to me is the antidote to the love of money? If you're sensing, maybe, you know what, I'm starting to love money too much. I mean, I'm not sure. Maybe I'm loving money too much. Can I give you a suggestion? Here's the antidote in my life. If I'm worried that I'm loving money too much, I write a check to a ministry somewhere. I give it away. And you know what's really good? Here's really a good antidote. My, my grandma used to do stuff like cod liver oil to me. She used to do like apple cider vinegar straight. There's a reason she was doing that. Now, she didn't know all the reasons, but for generations they had been doing it. Now you do the research, and there's reasons they do that. Now they sell that stuff at Whole Foods for $1,000 a pound. <laughs> you see, that stuff's valuable. So if you think you need the antidote, can I, get, can I just throw something out that I try to do? If I'm thinking I'm loving money, my antidote is write a check and write a check that hurts a little bit. Because you see, if it hurts, then I'm trusting God. I fear you. My life is in your hands. My times are in your hands. The Lord will accomplish that what concerns me. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithful. We're good. We got a savior. We got a provider who runs the world, oversees the nonsense, and he's working his plan. We praise you, our Father, that we know you, that we have your word. It steadies us, it calms us, it gives us hope. Give us perspective on these issues. Uh, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. When we bring these sins and confess them, we're forgiven in Christ through his blood. Help us to be men of faith in perilous times. Help us to have hope, because this I recall to mind. Therefore, I have hope that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And when we wake up in the morning, they'll be there fresh and new. Great is thy faithfulness. So tonight we rejoice. Help us to sleep well. Because you give to your beloved even in their sleep. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.